Hey, you guys, Scott Horton here to remind you that it's fun drive time at the Institute right now. We only do this twice a year, but it's got to be done. And I'm proud to do it, too. We've got an incredible crew of the best writers, authors, and podcasters in the libertarian movement. From Jim Bovard, Lori Calhoun, Tom Woods, and Ted Carpenter, to Keith Knight, Kyle Anzalone, Hunter Dorensis, Connor Freeman, and all the rest of the guys. It's the best team around. We've published three books this year. Keith Knight's Voluntarist Handbook, Lori Calhoun's Questioning the COVID Company Line, and Joseph Solis Mullins' The Fake China Threat. And here any day now, we will be publishing Thomas E. Woods' Diary of a Psychosis, Jim Bovard's Last Rites, and Keith Knight's latest, Domestic Imperialism. That makes 13 books so far, with more coming in the new year, including my new one, Provoked, How Washington Started the New Cold War with Russia and the Catastrophe in Ukraine, which, I know, is already overlong and overdue, but I'm working on it, I promise. And which brings me to the point. We don't have a big glass office building in downtown Washington. The money we raise goes straight to payroll and book production costs, and that's about it. The Libertarian Institute is the best bang for your buck in the movement. If you believe in what we're doing, please go to libertarianinstitute.org slash donate for details on how you can help keep us going into the new year and the great kickbacks we offer as well. And we thank you for your support. All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. Hey, you guys, on the line, I've got James Carden. He's a great guy, dude. We've been talking for years, a real expert on Russia. He is the uh, senior advisor to Acura. That's the American Committee for U.S.-Russia Accord. And, of course, he also writes for TAC, as we affectionately call it, the American Conservative Magazine at theamericanconservative.com, as well as Responsible Statecraft, where the very best friends of ours, formerly from tech, also write. Uh, welcome back to the show. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, you too, man. Happy to have you here and appreciate you making some time for us. Let's talk about Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, first of all, uh, that ain't even the extent of it, but let's just start there. Uh, can you explain for the audience, in case they might never heard of a thing, what is Nagorno-Karabakh and why might they be interested? Sure. So Nagorno-Karabakh uh, was, until last month, a Armenian Christian enclave within um, Azerbaijan. And it is a piece of territory that Armenia and Azerbaijan have been fighting over for a um, very, very long time. And um, after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, so during the Soviet Union, uh, this is sort of important, um, Nagorno-Karabakh had the status of a autonomous uh, region. Uh, but after the Soviet Union ended, um, it became an area of dispute 
between, as I said, Azerbaijan and Armenia. And um, for three decades now, um, Azerbaijan has had its eyes on that piece of real estate. And given the fact that Azerbaijan has made a lot of money from its oil and gas deposits in the Caspian Sea, they were able to build up their um, military. And with the support of their regional patron and ally, Turkey, um, they were finally able uh, to expel 120,000 Armenian Christians from the uh, from their ancient homeland, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, and this was done with the enthusiastic support of not only Turkey, um, but of Israel, uh, who has become Azerbaijan's main arms supplier. Uh, so it's a genocide that happened in real time before the eyes of the world, and it didn't receive very much attention. So I went over to Armenia uh, last week and talked to some people, tried to figure out what was going on, and I did it to raise some awareness of what had happened and why. Man, so, well, I didn't even realize that you had been over there. So that's really great. So um, first of all, though, I have to ask you, since you're, you know, zooming out, talking the, the international politics of the thing, what about the USA? Because Azerbaijan is a very close client state of America since the 1990s, correct? Well, the USA has played, uh, this will not surprise you or your listeners, uh, a rather unhelpful role in the region. Um, so it's sort of analogous to the role the United States played in Georgia when we supported the anti-Russian pro-Western um, government of Mikhail Saakashvili, uh, which resulted in uh, Russia's invasion of that country in 2008. Um, having not learned the lesson then, we went on to support another pro-Western anti-Russian coup in Ukraine in 2014. Uh, we all know where that has led us. Uh, and something similar happened in 2018 in Armenia when a Armenian parliamentarian and former journalist um, with the support of George Soros um, also came to power in a, what is called the, the so-called uh, Velvet Revolution. Uh, he is also anti-Russian, pro-Western. And um, this fellow has proven to be extremely reckless and incompetent, and he's managed to tick off just about everyone in the region. And uh, unfortunately, um, because uh, he managed to alienate the Russians by cozying up to us, um, really cleared the way for Azerbaijan with the help, as I said, of Turkey and Israel, um, to ethnically cleanse this ancient Christian community of Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, so, you know, we seem to follow the same playbook uh, in the post-Soviet space. Uh, what I mean by the post-Soviet space, obviously, the states that used to comprise uh, the 15 republics of the Soviet Union. Um, and it always kind of seems to end up um, badly for those countries. Uh, so that seems to be what is happening there. 
Yeah, no, I mean, that's huge and important. So this is uh, straight out of that phrase from Henry Kissinger, which it is from the middle of a sentence where he's warning not to, I forgot who it was he's saying not to abandon in this case, but he's saying we'll be known as having this reputation that to be America's enemy is dangerous, but to be our friend is fatal. And <laughs> and he was, I'd I have to go back. I'm sorry. I forget who it was that we were setting up and betraying that time. But you're saying that what happened here was it wasn't that Russia did a color-coded revolution in Armenia. You're saying America did a color-coded revolution in Armenia or something, you know, equivalent to that, which removed a pro-Russian government there that would have previously stood against Azerbaijan going this far and they maybe wouldn't have dared then. But since yeah. the Americans put this guy in, he wasn't willing or able to put up a fight and and resist and america sure wasn't going to back up any threat of his against the azerbaijanis is that what you're saying pretty much that's pretty much and uh, so they went ahead and that was what allowed them to take advantage of that circumstance and push things this far right. well that sure the answers a lot right so the attitude of the of the russians um is basically look you're cozying up to the europeans and the americans you're bringing our adversaries into the region we're not going to lift a finger to help you out um and terrible. you know it's just also terrible. true with regard to you know by the way let me let me just add here real quick because i've been reading and writing a lot about this that it was i think the brits with not much help from the americans that did the coup in 1993 and they overthrew the first democratically elected maybe it was the second democratically elected president of azerbaijan and replaced him with the former kgb dictator and put him back on the throne, and now he's died, and this is his son, and this is the yeah. American client that we backed there all this time since Bill Clinton. And we have this really unfortunate habit of also backing kind of radical Islamists. I mean, this this fellow um, is, um, you know, very, you know, very much a you know Muslim supremacist. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he helped the Americans and the Brits back the Islamists in Chechnya against Russia in 99-2000 there. And in Kosovo, right? And in yeah. Syria. <laughs> so, right. Uh, we, and then, of course, we're, we're backing, um, I know you're not allowed to say this in Washington, but um, we happen to be backing uh, a regime that is very cozy to the proud heirs of Stefan Bandera, Um in Ukraine. Yep. So it's an odd sort of foreign policy where we're on the side of um, neo-Nazis and Islamist extremists. Uh, but that's, uh, you know, well, look, it's either that or let the pipeline run through Iran and Israel says that's not allowed. So. Right. So a lot of moving parts. And um, I thought it was worthwhile to sort of go over there, especially now when you know the headlines are dominated by uh, the Israeli war on the civilian population in in Gaza, I mean that that story has been so dominant that it is even set aside or pushed to the back burner. What's going on in Ukraine? Now, it's quite a remarkable and sickening story that's unfolding before our eyes there in the in the in the Middle East. Yeah, and and now remind me. Um... James, how many people are we talking lived in Nagoro, Karabakh? Because it's over. They cleansed every last one of them out of there at Bayonet Point, right? But how many people are we talking about? 120,000. Man. So, 
Well, and this does get, I don't want to segue all the way into Gaza here, but it does bring up the way it's a fraught, controversial thing, and rightfully, I guess, about this word genocide. We're here, I don't think they massacred anybody. They just said, or else. I mean, there had been some fighting previous to that. But with this ethnic cleansing campaign, on the other hand, they have now completely obliterated Nagorno-Karabakh as an Armenian enclave here. This little, you know, stately within a state that they've maintained all this time. And then, but if you use the G word, it sounds like you're using the H word and talking about that time where millions of people were gassed and, you know, carbon, you know, exhaust piped to death there and machine gunned to death by the Germans in the Second World War. And so, um, you right. know, I don't know. You're not you're not trying to conflate the two, but you're using one word to describe both things. So could you explain a little yeah. bit about that, please? Oh, of course. I don't want to. When you use that word, there is, as you rightly point out, a, a danger of appearing to downplay the horrendous crimes perpetuated by the Nazi regime in mid-century. Um, I'm not trying to do that at all. Um, the definition um, in the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, which was adopted by the United Nations after the war, uh, defines it this way, as a coordinated plan of different actions aimed at the destruction of essential foundations of the life of national groups with the aim of annihilating the groups themselves. So it doesn't, it's a it's a broader definition than the one that I think is commonly uh, used. Uh, so it doesn't have to mean gas chambers and 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 other associated horrors. Um, it does mean um, the annihilation of a specific ethnic group uh, from their um, traditional uh, homeland, and that's exactly what happened uh, in October uh, in 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 Ogonor Karabakh. It's also in the process of happening with many, many more more deaths um, right now mm-hmm. in Gaza. So, look, when we covered this in October, it seemed like there wasn't a peep from Washington, D.C. And I remember even uh, talking to a friend of mine who's an Armenian-American who was covering this. And, you know, it could just be, too, that I'm ignorant of things going on that are just, you know, outside of my line of sight here. But it seemed like, where the hell are all the Armenians? I mean, in L.A., they have their own town, Armenia town, out there, you know, like in Glendale, just like you have little um, um, Koreatown and, and all that in L.A., where you have these different sort of little ethnic enclave neighborhoods there. And I'm going, you're telling me all the Armenians in L.A. can't do a damn thing about this? And I know that BTC pipeline is really important to Big Brother, okay? Like, I get it, but... There's a lot of Armenian Americans. In fact, I was having a conversation last week with a guy who was saying, oh, no, we got huge enclaves, too, in Boston and in Michigan and in different places all around where Armenians kind of congregate together and live uh, together in American cities. And so they've got to own some congressmen. They've got to have some kind of juice. And then we did see that the U.S. Senate said they want unanimously voted, unanimously, James, said they want to cut off all military aid 
to Azerbaijan. But that raises all kinds of questions about what that really means, whether they're just playing because they know that the House and Biden won't go along or whether they really mean it. And there's there's, you know, a real question of America's future relationship with Azerbaijan, because somehow little d democracy in America is meaningful when up against the interests of pipeline politics and preventing oil and natural gas from going through Russia or Iran when that's, you know, the empire's highest priority over there? What do you make of it all? Well, I think that's exactly right. The priorities of the United States government are clear, and the priority is cheap energy. Um, in terms of the Armenian community here, I too am a newcomer to 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 the subject. I, I, I will say that, and um, man, do I dislike being on the same side as this person, but um, I feel like I'm going to be struck down. Um, but I will Go say ahead. that <laughs> Congressman Adam Schiff <laughs> um, actually um, is responding to the um, popular will of the community that he represents out in Los Angeles. You know, he was uh, mysteriously good on Yemen for a bit there, too. I couldn't so he, attribute motive. I wouldn't want to. Yeah, so he um, is responding, obviously, to the calls from his Armenian, his rather large Armenian constituency. Uh, also, for, he's calling for a resolution seeking the suspension of American military aid to Azerbaijan. I don't think it's going to get very far. I think that the priorities are clear and the priorities are, um, are cheap energy. And... Um, I don't know if it's about the price so much as it's about making sure it doesn't run through Russia and Iran and they don't get their cut. Well, you know, there is obviously an Iranian um, aspect to this. Both the United States and Israel uh, share an abiding um, paranoia with regard to the Iranians and um, Azerbaijan's um, not only wiping out that enclave in Nagorno-Karabakh, they are now threatening um, to take by force sovereign Armenian land uh, and form a corridor connecting it to Turkey. Uh, that would shut Iran out of um, out of the region. Um, it would block the Russian and Iranian. Um, project of uh, connecting Iran to the greater uh, Eurasian Economic Union. So uh, when, you know, American policymakers see something that is bound to upset Iran, they're going to, you know, turn a blind eye uh, towards the collateral damage. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's exactly what we're seeing there. And of course, there's an Israeli, you know, the Israeli-Iranian aspect to this. Um, you know, Israel is obviously very publicly, Azerbaijan's main weapon supplier, but it um, also has reached numerous agreements with Azerbaijan, uh, whereby Azerbaijan allows Israeli foreign intelligence, military intelligence, uh, to use their territory to carry out covert operations against Iran. Um, so that's part of Israel's motive um, as well. Um, and this is all very well known within Armenia. Um, and 
So, you know, Israel has been no friend to uh, the um, the Christian community of, of Armenia. Mm -hmm. Well, folks, sad to say, they lied us into war. All of them. World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq War One, Serbia, Afghanistan, Iraq War Two, Libya, Syria, Yemen, all of them. But now you can get the ebook, All the War Lies, by me for free. Just sign up for the email list at the bottom of the page at scotthorton.org or go to scotthorton.org slash subscribe. Get All the War Lies by me for free. And then you'll never have to believe them again. Hey, y'all, Scott here. Let me tell you about Roberts and Roberts Brokerage, Inc. Who knew? Artificial bank credit expansion leads to price inflation and terribly distorted markets. If you've got any savings left at all, you need to protect them. You need to put some, at least, into precious metals. Well, Roberts and Roberts can set you up with the best deals on silver, gold, platinum, and palladium. And they've been doing this since 1977. Hey, if you just need some sound advice about sound money, they're there for you too. Call Tim Fry and the guys at 800-874-9760. That's 800-874-9760. Or check them out at rrbi.co. That's rrbi.co. You'll be glad you did. You know, back in 07, I interviewed Arnaud Debar-Grave, the uh, late great reporter from the Washington Times and UPI. He's like very close with the Reaganites. Um, uh, interviewed, he's the guy that interviewed Mullah Omar right before 9-11. And Mullah Omar told him, Osama bin Laden is like a chicken bone stuck in my throat. I can neither swallow him nor spit him out. Same guy. So he reported, and I talked to him about it then, that Israel had air bases in Azerbaijan, that they were prepared. And this may have been part of Cheney's idea of the end run that David Wormser had leaked of the end run to force W. Bush into war with Iran by having Israel start it and provoking Iran to strike back against American targets. And, you know, I, I know that that sounds uh, kind of far-fetched. It was originally reported by Stephen Clemens, but then the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Barton Gelman, all three confirmed that story, that David Wormser was going around publicly blabbing about that that was their plan. And he was Dick Cheney's Middle East advisor, the author of the Clean Break Strategy. Anyway, right. so that was a big part of it was, yeah, Azerbaijan was going to be the launching pad or a possible launching pad for Israeli airstrikes against Iran uh, during that time. And it would have been the first half of 07, if I'll be vague enough. Yeah, so it's a longstanding project. And when I was um, I was talking to some think tankers in Armenia, um, they pointed out that Azerbaijan, well, Azerbaijan had, I, I can't. The history there is very tangled with regard to Nagorno-Karabakh, but um, a couple of years ago in 2020, um, Azerbaijan made an initial gambit um, for Nagorno-Karabakh, and they ended up with about 30% uh, of the territory there. And um, what they did was construct two airports. Uh, alleged, uh, allegedly, they were civilian airports, but that um, apparently is not the case. The, and there are airports that the Israelis um, use uh, to, you know, launch, um, you know, covert um, operations um, against Iran. So this is an ongoing um, relationship. Yeah, well, uh, and a real dangerous one. Um, 
you know, especially in the current circumstances. But uh, so listen, um, can we switch gears a little bit in the last few minutes here to your real speciality, which is America's relationship with Russia and, of course, currently the horror show taking place in Ukraine now almost two years into it. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Um, can well, you true. tell us? Go ahead. Anything on your mind there? It's just, no, it's just so unbelievable because it's something that didn't have to happen. And a lot of people like um, like us were saying it didn't have to happen. Uh, this could have uh, come to a peaceful settlement. Um, but, you know, Washington uh, insisted on taking a different path. And so now we have probably we're approaching half a million Ukrainian casualties and probably very likely over 100,000 uh, Russian casualties. Um, and what you have is the wholesale destruction of the Ukrainian state, which is now going to be um, really nothing more than than a rump state. Um, and what we're going to have is a division of Europe running through Ukraine. None of this uh, had to happen. Um, there were alternatives. And the alternatives were refused. And those of us who floated alternatives were, you know, constantly uh, smeared as being Russian apologists and Putin puppets and unpatriotic and, or whatever. Uh, so it's a horrible, horrible tragedy. Um, but I have a feeling that history is going to repeat itself uh, in that the people who were most enthusiastic um, in pursuing the, the war policy aren't going to pay a price at all. It's going to, the same thing is going to happen uh, that happened after Iraq. Um, no one's going to pay any reputational price at all. And uh, that's, that's another tragedy because we never really seem to learn uh, from our mistakes. Yeah. It is amazing to see some of the recent statements. I don't know about the government ones because uh, you know, I saw where Michael Tracy was pointing out that, the Americans have been saying for a long time that, well, yeah, of course we're going to end up having to negotiate, but we just want to make sure we're in a position of strength to do so. And we'll fight forever to get into that position of strength, which as you and I both understand, they're not getting into here. So it, they're, they're kind of, you know, a little trial balloons about possible talks seem pretty weak in the circumstances. However, it does seem meaningful that you have, you know, like the likes of Morning Joe and Zbigniew Brzezinski's daughter up there saying, <laughs> ah, geez, everybody knows we're going to have to, you know, the Ukrainians going to have to give up at least two of the four of them provinces, huh? And shrug. And, and uh, Richard Haas, who was calling for regime change a year and a half ago, is like leading the chorus here for some kind of negotiation. And I guess has been reported in a couple of places as to have been uh, leading some back channel talks along these lines, even. So at I'm least they're beginning to admit, if not their fault, the truth, and that maybe there's a different solution, you know, at least possible, than just keep fighting forever in a war that they are acknowledging literally can not be won. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought up Mika. Um, you know, a friend of my family was uh, a consultant for uh, CBS in the 80s and um, actually taught a young Mika how to use the teleprompter. And I asked him, you know, what, what, what she, what she actually like, is she, 
as um, stupid as she appears to be. And he said, yeah, doing the weather would be a challenge for her. Uh, you know, this, her and Joe are just, you know, pathetic. And, uh, but they continually have on, you know, people, well, you know, people like Richard Haas are now, you know, starting to get, you know, starting to uh, see reality. Uh, but it's, it's really, it's really too late. Yeah, it's, um, it really is something, her job up there. And Morning Joe, for that matter, he's as dumb as she is. Both of them, all these people, you know, Christian Amanpour, she was talking with Ehud Barak, and he was saying, yeah, you know, yeah, there were, there's tunnels under there. We built them. And, <laughs> and Christian Amanpour, which, you know, someone might think that she's not just an anchor, but is somehow a journalist who, or at least is a lady who reads books and knows things or something unlike maybe just like the blondest hairdo on Fox or something. I don't know. But she says to Ehud Barak, come again? Did you misspeak just now? <laughs> and he goes, no, man, I'm telling you, we built that. Of course, we used to control that whole area. And we built all that stuff just because we were out of space. We wanted more space to help people in was the only reason we built those rooms down there, you know, and the whatever. So they just, uh, for the campus itself was, you know, it's a very crowded ghetto there, the Gaza Strip. Anyway, yeah. which the thing is, if she was just on Twitter or just, you know, looking around in, in meaningful um, written journalism, she would have known that a few days before, at least. You know what I mean? That story was out. We ran that on antiwar.com, I think, three or four days before she said that to Barack, which goes to show that even, quote-unquote, italics, I guess, Christian Amanpour, she only watches TV news. She doesn't really know anything. She knows as much as her viewers do, which is the most surface-level nothing. Not a thing, but she's a very dangerous character. Um, you know... I think she actually deserves, I don't know if credit's the right word, but blame perhaps, um, you know, her reporting from Sar Sarajevo back in the nineties, basically single-handedly launched the United States, uh, into, uh, in in into intervening in the region. Uh, so she's a longtime war propagandist. Um, there's nothing new about that. Of course, she's married to, um, Hillary Clinton's former, you know, spokesperson. Um, I think Jamie, she even married him in the middle of the Kosovo war, right? Jamie Rubin. That, that, that does sound right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that, you know, and then in, in terms of the, the Israeli thing, you know, I mean, this is a very, what's really interesting about it when it's, I mean, it's, as I said, sickening, but it's interesting in that um, it's a very public genocide. Um, they're not really trying to um, hide their tracks um they've actually been very honest about what it is that they are um attempting to do i mean um you had you know a former i think interior minister recently go on israeli television and say that you know with regard to southern gaza um this is a direct quote we we need to turn into a soccer field and we need to take advantage of the destruction and tell countries that each of them should take a quota of Palestinians. It can be 20,000 or 50,000, but we need 2 million people to leave. That's the solution for Gaza. Um, so this, besides being, you know, a, a horrendous crime. 
Well, let me place. let me interject right there real quick because oh. it is a very interesting deal the way they've done this. It seems very coordinated, but there is a little bit of speculation involved in it. But you have multiple, and in fact, I, I well, I should clarify: you do have government officials saying this as well, but you also have many former officials coming out, like as you just uh, quoted, uh, Ilet Shaket, uh, the former Interior Minister. And then uh, Major General Giora Island, uh, the former head of the National Security Council, had also written some things like this. And this is reminiscent, probably, of Donald Rumsfeld getting all the former generals to come and get their briefing every day and then go out and bum rush the TV and put this stuff out there and try to make it look independent. In other words, they probably would not be doing this if the government had not said, hey, listen, we need you guys to lead operation trial balloon front on this and we're going to start putting out this messaging you know mostly from sort of former officials but to normalize a thing and see what kind of reaction we get that kind of deal is that about right yeah that sounds right uh but netanyahu himself basically quoted a piece of of um i think it was scripture uh that seemed to signal uh you know give the green light mm -hmm. to Amalek, he called them, which was an yeah, enemy yeah. that God told the ancient Hebrews to murder every last one of them, including yeah. their babies and everything. Yeah. So, um, and of course, uh, people in his cabinet have, you know, referred to the Palestinians as human animals, et cetera. So um, I have a new piece up on um, antiwar.com today that talks about the role that the members of the Israel lobby play in the administration and the shaping and the administration's policy. Oh, really? Um, I'm so sorry I missed that, man. I'm at least a day uh, or a week no, behind I, on everything, James. You want to talk about that? Please do. Well, you know, it, it, it's interesting. Last um, week, um, Joe Biden, because he doesn't have a secretary of state um, that actually knows what he's doing he so he's been relying on people like William Burns and other and other people to um, deal with the heavies in the Middle East and last week he sent over um, a guy who's not very well known outside of Washington um, he's Biden's senior advisor for energy policy and um, his name is um, Amos Hochstein and I thought it was interesting that the the more I dug into his background, um, the more kind of trouble I, I got. Um, Hochstein isn't an American. He was born and raised in Jerusalem. Uh, he served in the IDF. Um, and then after a short stint at a PR agency in Tel Aviv, he came to the United States and went right to Capitol Hill and landed a, landed a gig. And in a very short order, was one of the staff directors to the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, there's no record of um, Mr. Hochstein um, having um, gone to a university uh, or any sort of um, academic um, or real world expertise in energy policy, but he uh, goes from the IDF to Capitol Hill and then right up the ladder right up the greasy pole in Washington. Um, and he found himself as head of the energy portfolio during the Obama, uh, during the Obama administration at the um, US State Department. 
um, it, it, that that it seems at a minimum to be sort of um, odd uh, that we have a um, Israeli representing the United States government uh, during uh, these uh, negotiations. He was sent over by Biden uh, this week to try to head off a expansion of the war um, between Israel and Lebanon. So um, things like that don't get a lot of attention here, but I, I think that- That is really strange. I mean, if you said- It is, it, it is odd. He... It, and, I, I, and I did run, you know, I, I, I approached the State Department, um, you know, just questioning, you know, who is this guy? You know, where, what's his background? What's his education? They refused to answer me. Um, even though they, they of course, have all the information on him because he worked for the State Department for over six years. Um, I did run the story by um, a very well-known Middle East hand in Washington who knows all the Obama-Biden Middle East players. Um, he seemed to signal that I was on the, he did signal that I was on the right track. I wasn't being unfair. Um, so, uh, you know, it's it's sort of troubling. It's sort of troubling that, that we have someone who, uh, and this fellow's parents still live in Jerusalem. So he, you know, he has, um, he may well be an American citizen and he may, uh, he may well be a loyal one. But, um, you know, there is such a thing as uh, the appearance of conflicts of interests here. And uh, it would seem that, um, that he, uh, he has those. And of course, uh, as I point out, after he was done overseeing the energy portfolio at the State Department under Obama uh, and Clinton, um, he ended up, surprise, surprise, with a board seat on um, a Ukrainian uh, gas and oil company. Mm -hmm. Well, and after so, he went over there, Israel bombed Lebanon more and killed civilians and journalists more. So anyway, that's um, that's up at anti-war today. Yeah. Wow. And can you go back to just real quick here? I mean, is this really just an absolute vote of no confidence by the president in his own longtime right hand man, Blinken, that he doesn't he won't send Blinken to go and talk to Israel to handle this kind of thing? Well, he did send Blinken over initially and Blinken went on kind of a shuttle diplomacy sort of tour where, um, you know, with the exception of the Israelis, no one wanted to meet with him. So, you know, that's why he's been kind of forced to send Burns, who everyone basically respects, um, and this fellow, um, this fellow Hochstein. Uh, Blinken is obviously the worst Secretary of State um, that perhaps we've Since ever had. Pompeo or the two Rices. Well, <laughs> yeah, the thing with the Trump administration, you know, whatever one's objection you know, whatever one's, uh, one's objections are, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that um, he, his foreign policy hasn't, wasn't half as destructive as, as the Biden, Blinken, Sullivan wrecking yeah. crew. I don't know, man. Operation Syria during Hillary and Kerry was pretty dang bad. Bad. Pretty bad. Yeah, exactly. As in high treason, <laughs> like the worst ever committed by any Americans on behalf of Al Qaeda. Yeah. 
And this is basically Obama's third term. You yeah. Know, you have a lot of the same people shuffling in and out, and therefore you have a lot of the same the same policies. Yeah. Well, certainly true. Um, all right. Well, listen, I'm sorry. I got to run, but uh, great to talk to you again. Great work as always. And keep submitting articles to antiwar.com. We're so happy to have you, James. Well, thanks very much. Have a great holiday. Absolutely. You too, man. Bye. All right, you guys, that is James Carden. He's at Acura. That's the American Committee for, they changed the name of it, U.S.-Russia Accord. And uh, also he writes for Responsible Statecraft and the American Conservative Magazine. And here he is at antiwar.com with Israel's other war, ethnic cleansing in the South Caucasus and his brand new one, Tel Aviv's man in Washington. Well, he's just focusing on the one this time, you know. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. APSradio.com, antiwar.com scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.